Good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning, church family. We're continuing our series in Proverbs this morning, and there's a word in our vernacular that's a job hazard for guys like me who do counseling and then teaching. It's the word cycle babble. And uh, my hope is, my, my f- big, second biggest fear, other than being heretical up here, is having cycle babble. So <laughs> we got a little bit of that, hopefully, today, but not much. But here's, I'm, I'm going to let uh, Mar- Murray Capel and David Pallison speak for me. So if you look at the top of your outline, we move into really an important topic in terms of how to really operate as a Christ follower in our world. Mar- Murray Capel says this. The primary aim in preaching, he means, is not to achieve increased biblical understanding along with a few practical ideas for applying it to life. So I hope that messages from up here, certainly this morning, is more than just giving you a few little nuggets to walk away with to live better. Rather, the aim is that as the biblical text is proclaimed, people will encounter God himself in a life-shaping way. That's my prayer in terms of preaching and teaching the gospel to you this morning, that that you would walk away from here, that I would walk away from here encountering God himself in a life-shaping way. And then there is a part of this, particularly this topic, looking at the difference between comparison and contentment, as the Proverbs uh, teaches. David Pallison says, biblical counsel is the application of a person Notice the capital letter P, the application of Jesus to the details of someone's life. It is based on a relationship aimed at heart modification, not behavior modification, heart modification in humility and esteem toward God. Christian faith is a psychology. Psychology simply means a word about the psyche, a word about how we operate as as humans. Christian faith is a psychology, a coherent, comprehensive understanding of how people work is intrinsic to thinking Christianly. So Dr. Pallison, what he's saying is a seminary professor of mine, Dr. Hunt, said it this way. He said, this word, this book, is the intersection of the character of God and how humans operate and the integration of those two things. So I think there's probably no topic in in the Proverbs uh, more specific to that than our topic today. What 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 does it mean as we go out to live in a world to where we live in contentment versus comparison. So would you turn with me to Proverbs 14? I'm going to center today's message on two different Proverbs. I'm going to sprinkle some other things in there from Scripture today and some things for you to look at and hopefully take with you. Proverbs 14.30, it's one sentence. We're going to take uh, each phrase individually to begin with. So heart health. Verse 30, just the first phrase, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. It's a very simple statement. We we look at the word tranquil and we think, man, uh, peaceful, serenity, tranquility, that's all true. The word, if you look deeply into what that word means, the word tranquil means open to healing. You may have a study note, my Bible does, it says healing. So a tranquil heart is a heart heart that is open to cure. So the writer of Proverbs is saying, a a heart that is open to cure, a heart that is open and vulnerable, gives life. That word life means what we think of. It means thriving, vitality, strong. also means something else. It means springing or running like a deer, and it means in the troop or congregation. So you can look at that, this verse is saying this, a heart that is open to healing. 
A heart that is open to relationship, a heart that is open to being confronted and being convicted and being seen and being shared, gives life, gives vitality in the context of relationship, in the congregation, in the troop. So I have a heart that, well, if I want to have a heart that runs like a deer, springing around like a deer with vitality, that's a heart that's going to be open. Heart's going to be open to cure. It's going to be open to feedback. It's going to be open to hearing from God, from his word in particular, as the filter in which I hear you and you hear me. So the writer is saying that these heart, a heart that is tranquil, that gives true life, is a heart that is open to relationship and open and vulnerable to cure. So even in our series, we can read Proverbs and go, wow, that's, that's a good thing for me, me, singular pronoun, for me to live like and for me to live in. If you notice the wording, all of the, even our series, we've talked about uh, wisdom and stuff, wisdom and self-control, wisdom and speech, wisdom and work, all these other topics that we've covered, those are to be lived out in the midst of relationship. And so even the Proverbs, we can read them and go, I, singular pronoun, need to go out and live this way. The living this way means we live with one another. So even the Proverbs are couched in relationship, though they can be read to apply just to the individual. But even as our series uh, goes through, let that be part of your filter too. So we are made to be in relationship. We're made to connect relationally. The same professor that I quoted earlier, Dr. Hunt, he was a, He's from Central Texas. Here's what he, what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, y'all, on most every page of the scriptures, we're going to run headlong into a relationship. And we run headlong into a relationship on every page. Most of scripture is written to a people, plural, who are a collective singularity called the body. God's called out people. And so in that relation, relational way, uh, we're looking at what it means to have a healthy heart. It means to be lived out in relationship. We're gonna one of the places we'll think about today is John 10. You can turn there if you'd like. We won't. I won't turn there for long. But in John 10, Jesus, the famous verse 10, I have come that they may have life, and have it to the full. If you notice just the statements and teachings of Jesus, how intensely relational they are. He talks about a sheep fold. Well, a sheep fold is for many sheep. And Jesus goes and he takes the, finds the one sheep who's wandered from the fold, from the flock, and brings it back to the flock. And he says the word flock in, in John 10 over and over and over again. So even his most well-known statement in John 10, I have come that they may have a full, abundant life, is soaking in our verse today a tranquil heart. I've come that they may have a heart that is open in relationship to me and, and to others. And so the, all the scriptures, John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, and by extension, us. The, the letters to the churches are all addressing how are we to live as followers of Christ in the context of relationship with other people and with him. And so the writer of Proverbs said, this open curing heart, heart that's open to cure, gives life and vitality. It makes the heart like a deer springing through the forest. It gives it vitality and life and movement. And it gives life to that, to that flesh. But then it turns. Talk about a way we, the way a sentence can turn with the word. But Chad mentioned this word comparison. Your second point there last week in his three C's he shared with us. This was comparison. We'll go a little bit further than we did last week on, on this word. But envy makes the bones rot. Makes the bones rot. That is a nasty word. And I want you to notice something. 
we are moving, the first sentence moves us to live with an internal orientation to go outward, a tranquil heart, internal experience. What is going on in here truly? And this second phrase moves it from outside in. That's where comparison comes in, outside in. We'll talk about that in just a second. The word envy means a feeling of discontented, pay attention to that word, of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions or qualities. So envy says, I'm moving from how God made me to how God made you and in making judgments about from the outside world inwardly. And so comparison moves that orientation in the opposite of the way we're made to live with each other and, and with God. He talks about it, it, it brings, um, makes the bones rot. The word rotten there means to decay as worms eat. You're welcome. <laughs> to, to decay as worms eat, as, as nasty as we can imagine. That's what envy does. Envy, say, envy rots our bones. So from a heart of vitality, and of life, and of springing, and of life in the congregation, where it's shared with other people, coming from a, a filter of this word, we move into this rotten place. And it says it's rotten to the bone. The, bo- the bone, that's a powerful word in the Old Testament. It's the same word that David writes in Psalm 32 when he's talking about what happened to him when he was quiet about his sin. He said, my bones wasted away. The, way, the word bone there means essence and substance and self. So the writer of Proverbs, same word David used, envy, outside in, makes the bones rot. It it has us to flush our own identities as God made us as relational creatures to relate to him and others. We do completely away from that and we live directly opposite of the way we're made to live. So two phrases in one sentence, very, very powerful that are literally kind of 180s from each other. So what the writer of Proverbs is telling us is like, if we live with an open heart, open to cure, open to relationship, open to what his word says as the filter for how we live with each other. When that happens, we have a heart like a, like a deer running through the forest. It's alive. And if we don't, if that orientation moves from out here to here, if I'm taking my cues from out here and not here, and what God's word says in here, then it's decaying. I have to put my identity away in order to live that way. It's very powerful. You may notice that The enemy loves to take things that are natural and stretch and distort them. For instance, Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the temptations, Satan comes to him and says, hey, those those stones there, you're able to turn them into bread. Just turn them into bread so you can eat. Well, that's accurate data. Jesus could indeed have turned the stones into bread. That's accurate. And he could have thrown himself off the temple mount there and, and, and not died, and that's accurate data. But look at the distortion. And Jesus called him on it using God's word like, no, that's not, how this, that's not how this operates. So he loves to take normal things and to distort them. He loves to take human desire and make it lust and addiction and envy. It's like we're talking about this morning. So he does the same thing, the comparison. 1954, I remember studying this guy in school, a guy named Leon Festinger. He had it, came up with a theory called the social comparison theory. Longitudinal study, and he said, this is how humans operate. Humans can't help but look at other humans and make determinations. Here's the key. Human beings look at other human beings and make determinations about self. Not about them, about me. 
It's a normal thing. It's called social comparison. We look at people, hopefully in the body of Christ, we look at people and say, I want to be mentored by him or I want to mentor him or, or her. But the enemy loves to turn that and turn it into envy, turn it into unfavorable, shameful comparison. We're going to look at that much, much more deeply. We are made for that. I mentioned up here, I think it was just a few weeks ago, this idea of how this part of our brain that does relationship called the limbic system. There are two principles about that that are normal human relationship. One is called limbic resonance. It's just the the atmosphere emotionally in a room. We call it reading the room now. Just resonance. What does a room feel like? And then limbic regulation. We look at other faces to see two things mainly. We look at other faces to say, am I okay? And do I matter to you? Children do it, we adults do it. We don't outgrow those things. We, we are made to look at each other in relationship and to have those two questions answered. For instance, we know we don't look into the, the, a baby blanket to a newborn and go, right? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Conventional wisdom goes, well, they won't remember it. Don't worry about it. It's not true, right? We know that those babies are looking at a face and we make a face like that, they will cry. Because human beings are made to relate facially to one another, called limbic regulation. We're made for it. Boy, that gets distorted when we, are, when we look for that limbic resonance and that limbic regulation to compare to see who's on top, who's, who's coming on top on this. So we talk about the one another's in Scripture. That is all about limbic resonance. What is the emotional, relational environment that you set with other people? Like want to forgive one another, love one another, be patient for one another, uh, be in the body with one another, cooperate with one another. All those one another's are about the type of emotional aura, emotional atmosphere we're setting with one another in the body. Now, how many times have you thought or said, we need to clear the air, right? Clear, we need to clean up the resonance around here. We need, to, we need to start talking directly about something. We need to say, What's what? And so when we're talking about the one another, we're talking about regulating with each other emotionally and relationally and spiritually, regulating with each other in the clear of the air to, to, to the resonance. So we have this dichotomy set up. Todd, if you'll put that, that slide up, you'll be amazed. I'm, I, I made this up myself. Who would have thought of two circles in those like that? Here, here's the struggle. We have two things going on at the same time as humans. We have a desire for connection. God has made us to connect, to connect with him and connect to one another. Made for it. And then we have this fear of being rejected. And those are in constant tension with one another. On and on again. I want, I want, answer, I want you to answer that question, and I want to answer that question for you. A- am I safe with you, and do I matter to you? We want to know those two things all the time. In the body, all those one another, just about those two questions. Are we okay with each other? Are we safe with each other? Can we do relationship with one another well? And so this this, um, tension that we live in all the time is going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Again, one more reason of a million to let this book be the filter through which we look at other people in our relationship with God and ourselves. And so so we have this, this thing going on. So 32 years of clinical practice and pastoring. This is not an exhaustive list. I came up with three, three things that are the roots of how we end up putting away our desire for connection and in our fear of rejection begin to practice comparison. 
So real, real briefly, one is the desire for recognition and validation. We're made to be recognized, we're made to be validated. That's what we, we've talked about before up here as well, uh, to belong and to matter. To belong means to be accepted for who you are, for how God made you. And to matter is to have significance. To matter is to be appreciated for what we bring. I love, the first one says, I love that you are. To belong says, I love that God gave you life. I love that God gave you life in our past cross. I'm glad God put you in this family. I'm glad that you are. And to matter, to be significant, is, is a statement that says, I love how you are. I love how God made you. I love your introversion, your extroversion, your artistic ability, your athletic ability, whatever it may be. I love this about you. And so part of what can be part of the roots of comparison is we desire that. And it can be so scary to, to speak out loud about the desire for connection. In our fear of rejection, we will get into comparison in order to belong and to matter. Second one is insecurity and fear of being left behind. Insecurity, so the fear of the need for security. Security simply says you can struggle in front of me and I will not reject you. I'm not going to, you can struggle, struggle out loud. I'm not going to reject you. And the need for safety is the need to know someone's looking out for my welfare. I'm not going to leave you behind. One of the most precious promises, Jesus looks his disciples in the face. In John 14, he said, listen, guys, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So powerfully relational, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not going to be terrified. I promise you, this is, this is a greater thing for you or else I wouldn't be doing it. And the third one is scarcity. <clears throat> scarcity is a survival mode. I think we all probably remember the pandemic. Remember what scarcity was? Toilet paper. Remember that? <laughs> Word got out somehow in the world that, hey, we got a big toilet paper shortage and man, people are crazy. Right? Scary. I'm going to go hoard toilet paper. And that's scarcity. Like, oh, no, the resources are going short. I better go grab all I can. We do that emotionally, too. We're, we're living in relationships that are scarce for belonging and mattering and safety and security. We will, they, that, those resources that keep me alive relationally will be scarce. And I will default to in my fear of being rejected, in my fear I'm going to be left behind, in my fear there's not going to be enough for me. I will reach and grab and grab and grab for whatever I can. And what's the most convenient shelf to grab that off of? Comparison. Taking a look out here to see, to see how I stack up against you. American Psychological Association, I don't take a lot of uh, my theology from them, but they, uh, <laughs> more and more, uh, but they did land on a good one here. Here's their definition of scarcity. A pervasive feeling of not having enough. A pervasive feeling of not having enough, whether it be time, money, listen to this, or connection. Scarcity says it is pervasive. It never stops. A pervasive feeling of not having enough, whether it be time, money, or connection. I got to get mine because there's no one's going to attend to me. So what happens is those three roots, like fear of insecurity, fear of being left behind, fear of lack of connection, scarcity, emotional scarcity. What happens? Uh, we, we end up in this constant sense of dissatisfaction. We're going to look at another model in just a second about that. What we would call discontentment. A historian named Arthur Schlesinger, it's a brilliant observation. He said, our society is marked by inextinguishable discontent. Never 
ever satisfied. So if we're looking outside, there's a 12-chapter there's a treatise on that called Ecclesiastes about how nothing out here is going to ultimately satisfy. It's not going to happen. And so Schlesinger, brilliant statement he makes there, we have inextinguishable discontent as a society, as people. We never can never get to this place because of the fear of rejection and what I do to not have that happen, mostly comparing myself, constant discontentment. The word contentment itself it really is fairly, in terms of history, fairly recent, the, <clears throat> the mid-15th century. It started out meaning satisfactory payment. Would you pay attention to that? Satisfactory payment. Here's what contentment used to mean. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me. Like I'm going to live life and you live life and I'm going to live life with you and you with me and you don't owe me. You're not in my obligation to have to do something. If later on in the 1600s it morphed into this happiness or gladness which consists in being satisfied with present conditions. I'm satisfied with present conditions. And so you distill that down, it, it comes down to entitlement and demand is what discontentment is. Entitlement says you owe me. Let me give you this little bit of a side, side note here. When you see the word demand, let's pay attention to this. When you see the word demand, what's happening there is a, a lack of healthy grief. If we don't grieve well, loss of power, loss of control, I can't make things in life happen like I want them to, I will live in this demand that life be a certain way. And when it doesn't work out, I demand even, even more. And so entitlement and demand is where discontent really has its breeding ground. And the result of that entitled discontentment is that discontented and resentful longing aroused by what someone else has. And here you can distill it down even further. Here's the problem. I compare, when I'm getting, living like this in comparison, I'm comparing my insides with your what? With your outsides. And there's a problem. Like I I, you know, and I'm sure that social media probably doesn't push this narrative at all uh, in our culture. Like my insides are this, and man, I look at Instagram and Facebook and go, well, I don't, I don't have a life like that. And I forget, well, they don't either, <laughs> but I forget that because I'm comparing myself to an image uh, that, someone's, that someone's crafting. So there's a picture that, Todd, you put that other, other slide up there. Here's a picture. So let's, let's uh, uh, bust a myth, first of all. There's an old uh, statement that says, you know, I got to the end of life and I figured out I was climbing the ladder to success and it was against the wrong building. Not true. There ain't no building. That ladder just keeps on going. <laughs> There's not a building. It doesn't stop. That's a cloud up there and that's that, the land of Est. And that's that land I can arrive at where I'm the bestest, strongest, richest, powerfulest it's the superlative and there's a myth that through comparison I can get to this magical place up here where I don't struggle anymore and I finally arrived I finally got what I've always wanted so that there's no struggle so when we're on the ladder that's a that's a picture for you of what it's like to live in this place of comparing outsides to my insides there's a power two two kinds of power if you'll notice if you just kind of in your notes there when we're on the ladder here we have the power of pride and so if I'm up really high on the ladder I can look down at you and go well if you were as blank as me smart accomplished whatever it may be you you'd be here too so you're clearly doing something wrong right the, the power of pride to look down at those 
I see under me on this ladder and have pride and, 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 and judgment on them. And then if I'm lower, because I'm comparing myself from out here, if I'm lower on the ladder, I look up with contempt. You've got my place. Never works out for me. When my ship comes in, I'll be at the airport, all that kind of stuff uh, that you hear. And so, like, it's, it's, we get up there, and, it, and, it, and it's very, very tempting. And when we're on the ladder, you can ride out by the side of the ladder. When we're, by, when we're on the ladder, two things, two things happen to our orientation. We live in reactivity. We react. We don't respond. We're going to look at that in just a second. <clears throat> we react to the external environment. And then competition, that's another one of the words that <clears throat> Chad mentioned last week of the three C's, competition. People become competition. I secretly, because of my envy that's rotting my bones, I secretly am in competition with you. I want to get up on that ladder where, where <clears throat> I can be above you, and maybe one day I get up to the magical land of Est. And so I live in reactivity. I live in competition. If, I'm, if I see myself as up here compared to you, I look down at you with pride. If I see myself as below you in my comparison to you, I look up with contempt or what we call <clears throat> toxic shame. Here's an example of that. It happens real early. A guy named Cain, Genesis 4. Didn't take long for people to get on the ladder. If you remember the story, <clears throat> that's one chapter after the fall of man. One chapter after that, Cain and his brother Abel bring an offering to the Lord, and the Lord, it looks with favor with Abel's offering, and he looks with disfavor on Cain's. And Cain looked at Abel, he looked at Abel's offering, he looked at his own offering, he looked at God. You know who he didn't look at? He didn't look at Cain. He didn't look at to where he could say, what is wrong with the offering, and what do you need from me, Lord, for this to be restored? So Cain's on the ladder. He, he looked and reacted to his, by the way, reactivity and impulsivity aren't necessarily the same. It says that Cain crafted a plan to lure his brother out to the field where he could kill him. Talk about competition. <laughs> Cain eliminated the competition. And as a friend of mine pointed out, he eliminated 25% of the human population at the time. That's big. Right? He killed a lot of people in one, one fell swoop. <clears throat> and so Cain goes out and he reactively not impulsively, reactively crafted a plan to eliminate the competition in his reactivity because he was looking up with contempt at his brother. And so one of the first things human beings did is jump on the ladder and have an external view of the world to say, how do I measure up? How am I doing? You see the question about how am I doing? How am I performing? And how do I look at the external world and do something different to get my power back when we're living in this this very, very bone-rotting way of life. So comparison, on that happy note, let's change the channel. So comparison rots the bones. It is what worms eat in decay because I'm on the ladder paying attention to you, competing with you, and reacting to what you do or say. Okay, so turn over just a few pages. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 19, verse 23. When Monty introduced the Proverbs series, he said, you know, this idea of the fear of the Lord, we're probably going to revisit that a time or two, so we're going to revisit today. Monty's a prophet. So verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. There's that word life again. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. 
Monty outlined this back in, in June. <clears throat> he outlined this fear means reverence or awe or this recognition that we're dealing with other. When we have the fear of the Lord, God is other and holy. A pastor named Marshall Siegel uh, said this about scripture or, or biblical fear. The fear of God is a heart-level embrace of the intensity of his holy and solemn authority over all. Holy, solemn, sovereign authority. It is having a heart that senses how small, sinful, and undeserving we are next to him. Key statement. And yet still dares in Christ to draw near to him. Key phrase. In Christ. Passage in Exodus to where... God is outlining to Moses how this thing's how worship's going to operate. And if you go back to that, and Moses is like, y'all got to be really careful because <laughs> this is a big deal. God is in the mountain, and, and this is a big deal. And through Christ, that, that's, that's broken. The veil is torn. And so I love the way he phrased that. All these things about the bigness and the holiness and the otherness of God. And then he says, but in Christ, we can still dare to draw near to him because of what Christ has done. Key, key figure in, in, in all of this. So the fear of the Lord, that, that recognition that he is other, he is holy, he is sovereign, he has all authority. The fear of that, the recognition of that leads to life. The same word we just talked about in Proverbs 14. If you take that uh, verse kind of word for word, it's really beautifully worded. To rest there, look at the words of security, leads to life, whoever has it rests satisfied that word rest means to stay all night means i can just sleep i can rest and so a heart that has that uh, that operates under the fear of the lord not in comparison not in fear of man as, as paul called it but in fear of the lord rests and is satisfied <clears throat> whoever has it rests satisfied that word means to be satiated completely full now, I grew up most of my life in Georgia. I had never heard of a feedlot. You may not have either. Sheila's from New Mexico, and they have these massive feedlots where they bring all this head of cattle in. There's a, like one patch of grass every three acres where she's from. And so you got to take cattle uh, into a feedlot. And so I asked my father-in-law one time, I'm like, well, do they just eat all day? He said, yeah, they do. They eat all day. <laughs> Like they are never, they, they will eat themselves sometimes to death. They're satiated. They're so full they can't hold anymore. So that's what satiation means. That's the word being, the idea being used here. It rests, whoever has it, whoever has this life that comes from that reverential fear is satiated completely and utterly full. It says it will not be visited by harm. That's a word that says, to be appointed an overseer. Think back to your own life. I can think back to mine. How anxiety, comparison, envy has been an overseer. Like it won't leave me. And so the writer of Proverbs is saying, he will not be visited by harm, the kind of harm that comes to do these things that eat up that heart. Visited means like, a, like an open app all the time. And, and, and the proverb writer is saying, that app can be swiped beginning with the recognition of who God is. Because otherwise, that ever-present anxiety or ever-present envy or ever-present false comparison will just hang around. And so, Todd, if you'll put the latter slide back up there. If you notice on this, there's a place called Solid Ground. Of 
where we ask that question. What am I doing? Where am I? So we'll move, we move on solid ground. That's the, the, the uh, notation on the, the uh, Roman numeral three there. We move on solid ground. We move from reactivity to response. I can respond to the world and respond to life in a way that is biblical and conciliatory. And then from competition to cooperation. Cooperation doesn't mean just a cursory, yeah, I'll be agreeable. Look at the word cooperation. Our job as humans is to operate in the world and to operate with others. Cooperation. So from reactivity on the ladder to response on solid ground, from competition to cooperation, to living in relationships. And on that solid ground there, we are comparing inside to inside. I'm bringing my insides to yours. The word confrontation, by the way, to confront, with front, my heart with yours. It's a great word in Scripture that we get our idea of confession from. It's homo legeos. It means to say the same thing. So when we're talking to one another, telling the truth to one another, we're saying the same thing, what we feel and what we need, what God's Word says, what's going on with us between other people. It's this bonding experience we have to say, what am I doing? Where am I to each other? A lady named Maria Popova, I, I, I don't, don't think she's a believer. I looked to see, I couldn't really tell, but she writes a, a really well-known blog. And here, here's a quote that she had about how we can operate if we're not paying attention. Here's what she says. When Kurt Vonnegut, the author, reflected on the secret of a fulfilled life, he distilled it to, quote, the knowledge that I've got enough. And yet, both as a species and as individuals in an industrialist, materialistic, mechanistic culture, we are living under the tyranny of more. We have forgotten who we would be if instead we lived under the benediction of enough. Now, this is coming from what I believe to be an unbeliever. God's truth is God's truth. Is that not a great statement? The benediction of enough. That I can be satisfied in the recognition of having a, a, a robust and fertile relationship with God and with you uh, in the body. So we're going to turn our attention to a, a little bit of a longer so what today. I want to give you a phrase that we can write across the bottom of that ladder, the bottom of, con, of, of solid ground. Here, here it is, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There's a hidden key, and I'm one of those guys, I just, I just needed it to, to confess to y'all. I read articles. Here's the, the name of one article I read for this information, Neural Correlates of Gratitude. <laughs> I read something like that. <laughs> neural Correlates of Gratitude. Here's what the statement says about neuroscience. The Huntsman Mental Health Institute says gratitude, by the way, not a Christian organization, but even they know this, gratitude. It boosts dopamine and serotonin, the neurotransmitters in the brain that improve mood immediately, giving positive feelings of pleasure, joy, well-being, and contentment. Even the Mental Health Institute knows that, <laughs> contentment. The Bible mentions the word gratitude 157 times. When you combine that with the uses of the word thanks and thankfulness and those kinds of words 72 times, 229 times in the pages of Scripture, the idea or the word gratitude and thankfulness uh, comes up. 
So on that note, here's what I want you to do. There on the back of your outline, <clears throat> you have a gratitude list. And I'm going to help you start it. So based on what we're talking about, comparison to other people versus a, a, a knowledge and a filter informed by God's word and healthy relationships with others, um, we can start this idea around being ungrateful. R.C. Sproul said this. This can be your first item. It was the first item on mine as I was doing it this week. Sproul says, the most obscene symbol in human history is the cross. Yet, in its ugliness, it remains the most eloquent testimony to human dignity. Dignity is God-given, and dignity is hard-earned by Jesus' sacrifice for us. Dignity cannot be given, will not be given, through comparison. And so, as a, as a, as a so what, spend some time with a gratitude list uh, and make some notes on that as we go forward. As you finish the list, uh, take a minute 
and, and pray and ask God to help me see me, see yourself the way God sees you, that you are enough in Christ. And out of that place of security, uh, we have potential to give life, much life to others that we're in relationship with. Take a minute to pray uh, just that.